0: As we're making our way through this uh, book of songs, Psalm 24, I just want to remind you that uh, the Psalms are a little bit of a different genre, maybe a little different for us to engage. It's not a story that we can identify with the characters. Uh, it's not so much didactic teaching. Uh, a psalm is a song, and so you have to approach it like a song. You've got to in, engage it um, Like a song, Uh, we have songs, right, that sort of fit um, the mood that we're in, or maybe uh, songs. Some songs just work for you to get you into um, a certain, a certain place, a certain mood, a certain frame of mind. Well, the songs, the psalms here are intended to do that. Um, They're uh, they're meant to sort of um, engage our, our our mind and our heart in a way that we find ourselves sort of singing the tune. Uh, being in step with what the psalmist is writing about. So, so th- think of it that way as we read it, that these, uh, these lyrics are meant to move us into um, an adoration and worship of our God. This is a psalm of David uh, referring to a, a king, the king of glory. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's ask God to bless His Word. God in heaven, we submit ourselves now to Your Word because Your Word is true. We thank You for these words inspired by the Holy Spirit flowing from the pen of David. We thank You that they're written for us, for our instruction to teach us how to sing in tune with all that You are and all that You are doing and all that You promise and and so we, we pray for your help now, in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 24 is an interesting psalm, uh, stands out uh, for one reason, that it is one of the seven psalms that an Orthodox Jew will sing every week. Uh, it, no one really knows exactly when this began, but it's an ancient tradition, probably before the birth of Christ, though not certain, but probably before the birth of Christ, where the uh, rabbis chose seven psalms and uh, chose one for each day of the week. So uh, Monday the psalm is 48, Tuesday the psalm is 82, Wednesday it's 94, Thursday 81, Friday 93, uh, Saturday 92, and Sunday, the first day of the week, was Psalm 24. I'm not sure exactly why they chose these. Scholars think that Psalm 24 was chosen uh, for the first day of the week because it is a celebration of God's lordship over all the earth. It's a a great reminder if you think about it. Uh, if, If every Monday we would remind ourselves before we head off to work, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This world doesn't belong to political parties, this world doesn't belong to uh, nations, doesn't belong to your boss, Uh, It doesn't belong to you, the earth is God's and everything in it. This psalm, this song, um, has three stanzas, if you noticed in your Bible, it's a good Presbyterian psalm, I suppose, it's got three stanzas, Uh, the first dealing with the, the greatness of God, the second, um, dealing with how do you get access to this great king who rules over everything? And then thirdly, um, inv- an invitation for a people to receive this great king of glory. So it's, it's about the, the greatness of God, the, uh, the gateway or access to God, and then the glory of God. Let's just pick it up in verse 1 because David begins with this dramatic, cosmic um, statement, this magnificent profession. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. The main point being simply that the earth belongs to God. This world is His personal property. So, the trees, fields, streams, lakes, oceans, mountains, deserts, sky, stars, but David's thinking specifically of the earth. It's all the Lord's, it belongs to him. He he owns it. And not only does he own the, the various parts of it, he owns everything that's in it, the fullness thereof, all the abundance, all the riches right? The, the, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. All the gold is, is mine. All the produce from the trees, it's all mine. I, had a, I remember having this um, impression uh, growing up on the farm. Uh, it was our farm. We owned it, and we farmed it, and the produce belonged to us. That's just how I grew up. I assumed that. And then I remember the day that we sold the farm, and walking out on the fields and realizing we didn't really own it at all. We rented it for a while. Uh, and, and the produce and everything that was in it was God's gift to us, but it, it, it was there long before we ever showed up. It's going to be there long after we pass away. It belongs to God. Everything belongs to Him. The, the, the earth and the fullness and even the people, the world and all who dwell therein. So God owns all the peoples. He is the rightful owner of every man, woman, and child, they belong to God. now that's quite a statement if you think about it here's David, king of one tiny little nation in the Middle East, surrounded by all these other nations, every one of them having their own gods. and yet David is, is claiming that Israel's God owns everything it. It's a, if, if you didn't know what he was talking about, I mean, it's, just a, it's a bold statement. It's, it's like the early explorers right, coming to America or whatever they, whatever they thought they were and slamming a stick in the ground and claiming it for Spain, claiming it for, um, for Great Britain, whoever. Um, he's claiming the entire world, it's all gods, even though the world is populated with gods, small g, and religions. And they, they, they would all protest and say, what are, what are you doing? I mean, if Israel's God is, if you want to say he owns Israel, that's fine. But what right do you, David, have to claim that your God owns Philistia, owns China? A country that David most likely didn't even know about. So how, how do you do this? What, what gives you the right to do this? Well, and the answer is simply what gives David the right to do it is because it's, it's true. So we can be confused by, by uh, the pluralism in our culture. We accept as citizens in our country that the government doesn't have the right to insist that everyone follow one religion, right? We profess that so that we, we are comfortable with, with a pluralistic society where uh, different religions should have the freedom to worship as they choose under the government in our country. But, but what a government is able or not able to do, God's not bound by that. A, a government has no right to establish a religion that everybody must obey, but God has the absolute right to establish a religion that everyone must obey. In Acts 17, Paul shows up in Athens, and he's talking with the philosophers there, and I notice you've got gods all over the place. But, but you need to know the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it now commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul makes the same universal claim. This is the Christian truth, that the God that we profess actually is the one only true God, the maker of everything and everyone. So everyone actually does owe him worship and obedience that's so people might protest. You say, what right do you have, you Christian? What right do you have to tell us that we have to worship your God? What right do you have to press your moral values on us? What right do you have to say that I should not abort my child? Who are you? What right do you have to say that the sexual ethics of Old Testament uh, and, and New Testament, pick your book, but this, this book here, what right do you have to say that the sexual ethic found in here has any significance whatsoever for my life? Why, why how dare you try to impose this, you see, on, on my life? People are offended by it. Well, you see, the, it's, it's, the, our answer is it's, it's, not, our, it's not our morals, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. And he wrote a book, and this book talks about things like abortion, and it talks about things like sexual ethic. It talks how God created people, man and woman, male and female, in his image, and what God's design is for that, and his purpose is in that. And we don't oppose that on anyone, but we call men to repent because this is actually true. There is a maker, a creator, a God before whom, right, everyone is going to give an account. So so don't let pluralism confuse you. David just uh, blows through all of that. The earth is the Lord's. That fundamental fact calls us then to live under the lordship of that God and to press his claims on his creation. We're not opposing our claims, we're, we're imposing His. And we have a right then, a calling to call people to repent before this God. Now, on what basis uh, can we do this? What, 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 what gives God the right to say, it's all mine? Well, David says, because He made it. He, <laughs> it's that simple. He made it. He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. This is the language of uh, Psalm 95, the same thing. Uh, The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his, the sea is his. Why? For he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Our Maker. See, this is is what um, the Darwinist hates. He doesn't want there to be a creator. He wants things to have happened by astonishing chance. Because then he doesn't have to deal with a God, a creator, a maker. This is what the atheist desperately wants to avoid. But, you see, no matter... How you might fantasize or what sort of philosophizing or scientific gerrymandering you want to do, you cannot remove the simple basic fact that God created the world. And God created every person. And therefore, because he created it, he has a right to it. It is his, and every person, every every man, woman, and child owes God worship and owes God obedience because he's the king, he's the creator. It's just this staggering fact in our world, so David then moves okay if that 's true, how do you do that if, if, every, if every creature owes him worship, how do you go how do you do that? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place and there 's two issues here one is uh, uh, is gaining access, who shall ascend the other is standing, surviving. you see access is is we 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 take it quite a bit for granted that we can just pray and we believe that we have the ear of God we can come into worship and we believe that we are in the presence of god and it's true we are but but David wouldn't have had that same that same sense as we do. you see great kings are, are notoriously difficult people to get in touch with, particularly in ancient near east in middle east they they're often viewed as gods themselves, and so you don't just drop in on a great king. We we understand this even today, right? The more famous a person is, the more difficult they are to get in touch with. You can't just you can call your best friend and say, "Hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee." You can't call Michael Bublé and say that. I'm not saying you'd want to, but if you do, and I think it'd be fun, but. You, you just can't do that. There's a whole bunch of people you got to go through before you get to somebody famous. Well, kings are, are much more difficult. In fact, if you go uh, into the presence of a king without being asked specifically by the king to come, you're taking your life in your hand. Remember the, remember the story of Esther? And Mordecai comes and says, listen, this, this awful thing is happening. You have to go to the king. And she says, but he hasn't, he hasn't asked me to come in. He says, I don't care. You have to go. And so, what does she say? If I perish, I perish. That what, that's what's on the line. You don't just trot into the throne room of the king. So who can gain access to the great king, the Lord? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who can stand in his holy place? Who can survive there? And, and David, again, has reasons for asking this. He knows what God is like. He kno- David's experienced the holiness of God as it lashed out. Remember the story of Uzzah when they're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem? It had been captured and had been stored for a while. Now they bring it back. It's on an ox cart, and the ox cart is going across the river, and one of the oxen stumble, and the cart tips a little bit, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to protect the ark, and God strikes him dead. Nobody expected that to happen, and yet you see, it was the holiness of God breaking out. Who can stand in His holy place? There was a holy of holies in the in the, uh, the the tabernacle, and later in the temple. And who who's allowed in there? Nobody's allowed in there. Only the high priest, the appointed high priest, and only once a year, and that only with the atoning blood. that's all the access there was. And for someone else to trot in there in, in any other way, any other time, for any other reason, he would be immediately put to death. Because it's a holy place. And we're not holy people. So that's the great tension you see of mankind. Who can do this? We are made by God, we're made for God, we're we're commanded to worship God, to come into His presence and bow down, and yet how do you get access to, and how do you gain standing with Him? Who can stand before this holy God? And the answer David gives is holy people. Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands refer to acts of obedience. We, we do our, um, these are the things that we either serve and bless and give and work or things that we use to sin against God, to steal, to hit, whatever. They're, it just stands for human activity. And, and clean means hands that are unstained by any sin. A pure heart is a heart that's given unreservedly in love and obedience to God. No idols, no spiritual mistresses on the side, wholehearted devotion for God. He does not lift up his soul to what is false. He's not worshiping false gods. He's not looking for his life in material things, in pleasure, in reputation, security, His soul is lifted up to the true God. He seeks his life from God. He says, your love is better than life. My heart says, if you seek your face, your face, Lord, I will seek. He hungers for God. And he does not swear deceitfully. David's thinking specifically, as you see, of a person who, when he makes a vow, keeps the vow. He doesn't lie in his tax returns. He doesn't tell white lies to escape embarrassment. He doesn't make marriage vows to love and honor and cherish and then act as though he never made them. He's, he doesn't take church membership vows. He doesn't take, um, right, where you, you, you vow to participate in worship and ministry and then act like you didn't make them. Those are vows. This person does not swear deceitfully. He, he makes a promise and keeps the promise. And, and the reward then for this person is... That person can ascend the hill of the Lord. He can stand in the holy presence and he'll be blessed there, verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will be welcomed. He can stand there. God will will show his smiling face to him there. And God will, he will um, give this man both blessing and righteousness. Blessing and righteousness. In other words, he'll be justified, declared perfect, declared innocent, worthy of God's face, worthy of honor, worthy of glory. That's what's going to happen. And then David makes this, this shocking declaration. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So here he's just, who gets to go into the holy place? Holy people. And you know that people who are reading this song are thinking, well, that excludes me. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I've lifted up my soul to false things. I've sworn deceitfully. I haven't kept my word. How, how could I get into the presence of God? How could I be blessed by God? God. And David gives this great gospel message here in verse 6, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And, and if you're tracking with the psalm, there should maybe be a little bit of whiplash in verse 6. D- did he just say Jacob? I mean, Jacob? In, in the Hebrew, there's no, um, it's, it's, very, it's very terse. Um, those who seek the face of God, Jacob. David seems to be saying, like Jacob. Well, let's just think about that a moment. Do you remember Jacob, right? J- Jacob, the, the lying, skeneving, dirty, rotten. I mean, he was, So I heard someone say, uh, Jacob was someone only a mother could love. And she did. <laughs> she loved Jacob. But he's a wretch of a man. He, his hands are not clean. He stole his own brother's birthright, knowing exactly what he was doing. His heart was not pure. Jacob loved Jacob far more than he loved God or anybody else. He swore deceitfully to his own father. Is this Esau? Old blind Isaac asks, Yes, father, it's Esau. Lies right to his own father and steals the blessing of the firstborn. And and it just goes on from there. The story of Jacob is a story of a, a schemer. He's a, he's a, a, a lying cheat. It's what he is. So, so, so why does David say, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the God, who seek God, like Jacob? Well, a couple things. One, one thing, I think David is thinking about a particular event in Jacob's life. Genesis 32, you can find it. Where Jacob has been over at Uncle Laban's, Jacob has gained a lot of wealth, some of it through some pretty shady schemes. He's on his way back now home, and Esau, he finds out, is coming to meet him. Esau, the one who pledged to kill him. And not only is Esau coming to meet him, the scouts say he's coming with some friends, 400 men, undoubtedly armed. And Jacob is terrified. And so Jacob sends the whole, all that he owns, his whole family, servants, everything. Sends him across the river into two camps, and Jacob stays alone. And a man shows up, and Jacob begins wrestling in the night, and wrestles and wrestles and wrestles. And at some point in that wrestling match, realizes he's 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 fighting with an angel of the Lord. I think this is a this is a pre-incarnation. Um, this is Jesus in, his, in pre-incarnate form. And he's wrestling with the Lord. And, and finally, the Lord touches the, his hip, and, it, and he goes limp, and he clings to the Lord now. He's hanging on. And, 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 and the man says, let me go. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And you see, in, in that wrestling, Jacob had been wrestling with God his entire life. But now, it was just, it was for Jacob's sake. He's wrestling to get what he thinks he he should have. He's always been fighting. But now suddenly he finds someone who is able to, with a touch of a hand, cripple him. He's in the the presence of a power greater than than he's able to handle. And yet yet he knows this is a good God. and, And I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God blesses him. See, he's he's a desperately wicked man, but he's become a desperate man. And and, and it, it suddenly breaks in that there is no real blessing in this world apart from the blessing of God, that all of his scheming only comes to this, sitting out in the middle of the desert with 400 men on his way, and all of it could be gone tomorrow morning. There is no blessing, there's no lasting happiness apart from this, apart from being in favor with God, being blessed by God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And there God blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. You see, Jacob stood in that holy place. He was not consumed. And David wants us to know about Jacob. David wants to know that That God is willing, you see, for those who seek his face with the the tenacity of Jacob. But sinners like Jacob, there is access. You can go there. He will receive sinners. And and the man who seeks the face of God with, with that desperate sense, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God help me. Those who who seek God with the the desperateness of knowing that if if, if they do not have God, they have nothing at all. David says, you will receive blessings from the Lord. You will receive righteousness. Righteousness from God. And that righteousness, you see, allows you to stand. That's exactly what you find in Romans chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified... Uh, righteous, it's the same word, by faith, not by works, by faith, by clinging, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That, you see, when you come to God as a sinner, You come to God like a Jacob. You come with all the stain of your life, but you come in the conviction that God alone can save you. And that if God does not save you, there is no salvation. You come by faith and cast yourself on him. Paul says, and David says, there is righteousness for you. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which gives you access into the holy place and a standing in grace. That's the gospel. You see, that's the song David's singing. It's a gospel tune. He doesn't know all the words yet. It hasn't all been revealed to him, but he knows it's a gospel tune. He knows it's good news for, for people like, like David and, and people like Jacob. He, he knows that, that God is willing to forgive and God's willing to receive really messed up people and sinful, wicked people when they come to him and seek his face. And he knows it's going to happen. This is all going to happen through a somebody. And that's why David finishes the psalm the way he does. He doesn't know the name yet. But he knows there's a king coming, a Messiah is going to come, who's going to make this happen. And so David ends this, uh, foretells a day when, when a great king will approach the gates of God's holy hill, God's holy city. And a herald is going to shout out, as heralds would do, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, you ancient, jo- ancient doors. And from inside, the watchman would say, who is the king of, Is this king of glory? And the answer would be given, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And once again, the man will say, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the watchman will respond, who is this king of glory? And the answer will sound out again, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. David sees it in his mind's eye. He doesn't have all the details, but he knows that there is a king coming to God's holy hill, coming to God's holy city, who's going to accomplish the mighty salvation, the salvation of God. He's going to be a mighty warrior, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. That's why it's fascinating to me that the Jews decided to make Psalm 24 the psalm for Sunday. Because there was a Sunday around A.D. 33 when a mighty king came to the gates of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. And the crowds around him hailed him as a king of glory, Hosanna to the son of David. They were naming him as a king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the religious leaders hated this man. And sought to put him to death. And a few days later they succeeded. And as Jesus hung on that cross, those who mocked him were convinced that God was punishing Jesus for his crimes. But the truth, you see, is God was punishing him for yours and for mine. The naked man hanging on the cross with nails through his hands and his feet was actually the king of glory, waging his war against the enemies of God. He was there bearing sin in order to overthrow the power of sin. He was there entering into death in order to crush the power of death. And the crown of thorns and the blood-stained brow and the nails in his hands and his feet and the whips on his back, that was all just vestment for war. And when that Jesus cried out, it is finished, all the powers of hell were destroyed. And then that king, victorious, rose from the dead. And that king ascended into the very holy place of God, the throne room of God in heaven. John writes about it in Revelation chapter 5. Where he says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus stands in the holy place because Jesus has the clean hands. Jesus has the pure heart. Jesus lifted up his soul always to God. He did not once swear deceitfully. He's the holy man. And so the, the elders and the angels, the creatures worship, worthy are you. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is worthy. He's made his way to the hill of the Lord. And see, this Jesus has made a way for you to ascend the hill of the Lord and me. By his clean hands and his pure heart and his true worship and his faithful speech, he is worthy to stand. And the beauty of the gospel is that he gives that righteousness freely to sinners who confess. And it becomes their righteousness. And by faith, you see, you can stand in him. And friends, this Jesus now reigns and he's coming again. You know it's true. He's coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, to bring final judgment on his enemies and final victory for his people. And so you have to deal with him. David, you see, sings a song about the most fundamental facts. There is a God, a God who created you. And no matter how foolish you might be, no matter how, um, how the God of this uh, age might have blinded your mind, no matter how uh, the, the folly that maybe has made you absolutely forget it's true, it stands as true. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness of the world and all they who dwell therein. You've been made by a creator and you will have to deal with that creator. It's a fundamental tr- truth that's, that will never disappear. And the second truth is that that God has made a way for you, the sinner, to come into his presence. If Jacob is allowed in, if Jacob is received, if Jacob can stand by grace alone and receive righteousness from God, then, friend, you can too. Then you can too. And that king promises to welcome you as you come seeking his face, seeking his blessing, and that king is coming again. And friends, this is the kingdom that matters more than anything. I just read, I think it was from Piper, but uh, America and all of its presidents, a good thing to remember during election year, America and all of its presidents will one day be a footnote in the dusty pages of human history. But the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ endures forever. Jesus reigns forever. My question for you tonight is, do you know him? And not just do you know him, are you willing to live For him in his kingdom, trusting this great king of glory with all that you have, all that you are, with your life now and your life forever. If not, why not make tonight the night where you get on your knees and confess to him. And if so, then let's live like it's true. He is a glorious, glorious king. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is a my, mighty king of glory. He is able to save us, and he promises to do so as we call upon his name. God in heaven, you know the life we're going to go into tomorrow. We're so tempted to think that the circumstances of our day and our, our relationships, our country, our health, that those are ultimate issues. They're important issues, but they're not ultimate. The ultimate issues is that we've been made by God. And that Jesus reigns as king. And that this Jesus has made a way for us to be at peace with our creator, our maker. To receive blessings forever from his hand. This Jesus coming again and calls us to live now in his kingdom for his glory, for his purposes. And Lord, I pray then that the details of our days take on their true meaning and significance in light of this King of kings, this Lord of lords who owns us. May we live like those who believe the gospel. Lord God, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.